My name is Colin Packard, and uh, I preach for the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ in Allen, Texas, which is a northern suburb of, uh, of Dallas. And so I'm uh, really glad to be with you all today. Pepperdine's been uh, an oasis for me over the last decade. Uh, and before that, my dad was a preacher in San Diego. Uh, so I grew up in, in, a, in San Diego area, and this was, I know, a place for them. We got our grandparents during that week, and so that was good for us. But my parents, I know, enjoyed uh, their time here at Pepperdine over the years, so I'm grateful for this place. Uh, I, uh, I want to start by just talking a little bit about um, the word that is in uh, the description, nostalgic. And uh, I know a lot of us probably have some conception of that, but when I was thinking about this class, I was thinking about, uh, as I was reading through, okay, what is scripture, what is the Bible, what is God doing in history? Uh, but also just the kind of current reality of where things are around us. And if you've read the description, you see a little bit of the connection to that. But the word nostalgia was coined in uh, the 17th century, 1688, by uh, Johannes Hofer, who uh, described the feeling of a specific demographic of people, the Swiss soldiers at that time, who uh, what they felt on the battlefield. And if any of you have been in the military, understand kind of what that's like. Uh, to be at war and to be away from family. That was the uh, word that, the, the, why this word was coined, actually. It was going back to this moment of uh, homesickness that troops felt um, on the battlefield. So it kind of was a combination of two Greek, uh, Greek terms, nostalgia, nostos, which uh, it's not the Gnostic term, it's on GN uh, that I'm talking about, but nostos means homecoming or returning home. And uh, the word algos, which is the second part of that, uh, is the word pain, basically, in the Greek language. So it's this combination of a feeling of homesickness with the pain that's associated with that. And it was this diagnosis of sickness that was related from being away from things, <coughs> away from what we're used to. I remember having that feeling uh, the first time, probably, when I was, after my sixth grade year, I went off to this camp called Kanakuk uh, that was uh, in Missouri. We flew into Springfield. I didn't know anyone at this camp. I remember being away from home, home and family and feeling the sense of a two-week trip away from family. I'm feeling a homesickness. I remember feeling for the first time. And that's tied into this idea of nostalgia. It's tied into this idea of nostalgia. Uh, probably a more harsh term as it was originally coined than what we've come to see it as. There's some positive associations, obviously, with nostalgia as the term has gone forward. But the older I get, the more uh, prone to nostalgia that I feel. Uh, the more I have kids. Uh, recently, I, I have a daughter who's my, my third child, and uh, she's going to be going to kindergarten next year, and so we're going through kindergarten orientation. And uh, I, I, I have this app on my phone, uh, some of you have it probably, that bring up every, on every day like all the posts that you've had from previous years or pictures that you've posted. And every day it's kind of that nostalgic thing for me. And I, I'm noticing more and more this feeling of, man, life was good several years ago as the kids were growing up. And there's good memories that we're making today, and there will be good days in the future. But already I can see more and more that happening in my own life. As Macklemore put it, for those of you who may be a younger generation or like Macklemore, uh, in his song, The Good Old Days, I wish somebody had told me, babe, someday these would be the good old days. Someday soon your whole life's going to change, and you'll miss out on the, on the magic of these good old days. Or for others of you who don't have a clue who Macklemore is, you might remember the old song, <laughs> from Big Yellow Taxi, Joni Mitchell. It was written in 1970, nearly 50 years, if you can believe that, ago that song was written. And uh, if you grew up in the Christian music world, it was Amy Grant that made me familiar with Big Yellow Taxi, not Joni Mitchell and the Counting Crows after that. But uh, the line is, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Don't it always seem to go that, that you don't know what you got till it's gone? They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Macklemore and, and Joni are tapping into this feeling of nostalgia that we all feel from time to time. And some of you, I think, when you jump onto campus here, you probably have those moments, right? You can remember back to maybe moments you were student here or moments where God spoke in a particular way in your life or you had that conversation with a mentor or, or just the years and years of coming here and the notes that are taken, stashed away someplace that you may return to from time to time. I have nostalgia when I step into this place. So I grew up in a church that taught me the value of nostalgia from day one. We, we come uh, in Churches of Christ from something called the Restoration Movement. And that language is language that ties into that idea of nostalgia in some sense, right? We're trying to restore something that was there in the past, that God has been present all throughout. And really the first century was that return to apostolic Christianity that we thought 
we'll be back in our best moments if we can get back to what the early Christians practiced. And, and so in some ways, uh, our movement, I think, has kind of ingrained in me, ingrained in probably many of us that have grown up or have come to it a little bit later, this sense of there was a time when things were right. There was a time even in our own journey where things were easier than what they are today. It's a challenging time to be in the midst of church. There have been time, challenging times in the past. That's not necessarily a new thing. But I was taught to think about the Bible that way, right? There's this New Testament pattern. And it actually was after Jesus was kind of gone that we finally got things started. It was really Acts and beyond. It was that, that uh, dispensation that we were supposed to begin with and, and return things back to. And then I began to read Paul's letters, and I thought, I don't know what we're so nostalgic about. This is a mess. <laughs> so many good things that we're able to draw from these because they apply and they're so similar to what we deal with today. But I grew up with this assumed value of nostalgia. That when I go to scripture, I'm there to somehow pick up something that was there that was right and use that to address something that is more and more wrong. Uh, and we live in a day and age where nostalgia is all around us. Nostalgia sells. You ever been to a Cracker Barrel before? <laughs> like you have to fight your way through nostalgia to get to your table. Um, but I mentioned also in my description that this last political campaign, the presidential cycle, there was a, a nostalgic phrase that was used in that, make America great again, which is drawing on this sense of there was a time when things were better, which is interesting what story we're telling and what our experiences versus the experiences of others with that. We're drawing in a particular story of the past to draw back to. But it's a shameless play on nostalgia with the promise that there was a time when America was great. That day's long past, but if you elect me, then we can return to a time where it will be great again. And so I'm, I'm tapping into this cultural moment in some ways with this. I'm trying to look at scripture, but I'm also tapping into our story as the restoration movement. To say that nostalgia plays strong with us. Uh, and uh, I think it's important for us to pay attention to that and ask the question, what is God doing? So here's the question that I want to address today in this class. Is the best future a return to a pristine era in the past that we just need to get things back to? Or is God's best future for us actually in the future? And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to spend some time with you to kind of draw out some things from Scripture and go several places today. Um, and we'll, we'll get a lot through Scripture, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to kind of have them ready to go. Um, there's a lot in my heritage, in our cultural climate, in our personal and psychologically nostalgic makeup that would answer that question in a way that would look to the past. But I want to suggest today that God isn't behind us, back in the past, endlessly trying to get us to return to how things used to be. I believe God is actually ahead of us, pulling us forward into the future that God wants us to move forward to. And since the beginning of time, I believe God has been ahead of us, trying to invite us forward on one of the greatest, and one of the greatest barriers to moving forward to his future has been nostalgia and trying to go back to a place that we thought was pristine and we've forgotten some of what wasn't. There are plenty of people who look at the Bible and think of it as this archaic, primitive book that should be outlawed for some or that should be dismissed because there's all kinds of violations in here of human rights and, and, and views of women and slavery and violence. And they believe that the world would be better off leaving Scripture behind in order to move forward. And that's not my suggestion today. Actually, the ideas that I want to share with you today I got from our love for Scripture in the Restoration Movement. So that's the air we made as we handed scripture on, right? And that's something I heard Rick actually talk about actually in the class this morning was um, scripture is the very thing that I've gone to that's helped me to renew and see God's move going forward. And that's what I want to draw out today. So I want to crack open our Bibles if we can. Start in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. I want to start with the story of a song that I learned growing up, Father Abraham. We won't do the motions today, although that might wake us up at two o'clock here. But Genesis 12 to me is one of the most important passages in all of scripture. It's the one I've probably preached on most uh, in my time in, in ministry of the last decade. And uh, actually, this is one of the most revolutionary verses in all of Scripture, I think, in its context. And I think it's important to uh, say that caveat at the end of it, in its context, because so often we read Scripture in a way that's anachronistic. We read it looking back, thinking about how primitive it is. But if we read it in its time, in its context, it's one of the most revolutionary texts over and over and over again. And I want to point that out today. You know, uh, the... the time where this period, the time period where this is uh, written to, and uh, I guess reflecting back from exile, most likely the stories, it finds itself in its final edited form. But in the midst of that, there's this sense in which the world saw, people saw the world in a cyclical view of the world. 
right? Where you live is where your parents live, where your grandparents live. And there's not any uh, idea that your kids are going to live any other place. This is the property, the land you come from, and you're going to probably do the same work your father, uh, your mother did in, in the home or outside of the home before. And every day was just a repeat of itself. It's all this cycle. Everything that's happened will happen again. Everything that hap has happened is happening again. It's all a cycle. And then comes a fresh idea in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. A revolutionary idea. And these kind of things are all around Scripture. We just look a little closer. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord uh, had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, I want to let you know that's a brand new idea in human history. No one ever did that. Abraham is told to, to leave and make a new future, one that hasn't existed until now. And God is saying to him, Abram, I'm inviting you to step off of this cycle into the unknown. Now, we live in a day where we take that thought for granted. I grew up away from my grandparents, and I have no illusion that my kids will stay where we are all of their lives ahead. We move and we go to university, some of us. We, we move because a job takes us someplace, all kinds of reasons. But do you see the difference between the cyclical view where everything's going to be the same, we're going to stay where we are, versus God who's saying to Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to leave your family, your clan, your tribe, your, all of these things that you've known. And I want you to step off and I want, want you to go. And he doesn't even say where. And I think verse 4 is even more amazing if we read on past it. Because in verse 4, it's, it says, so Abram went. It's not just some crazy idea from God. It's like Abram says, all right, you want me to go? I'm going to go. And he doesn't know exactly where he's headed, but he goes. <laughs> It's just three words. It's like the dawning of a new era in human history. That you can leave the known. You can get off the cycle. You can move forward to a future that isn't the future that's been behind you. And so now we're on a trajectory. We're headed somewhere. History is going someplace. And if you learn history in a textbook or maybe you remember on the classroom wall a history that was a timeline going around, like they didn't view the world that way back then. But now we read history as if it's headed somewhere. There was a past, and, and it's moving forward to a future, and there will be more story to tell as the years go on. And that revolutionary idea about a trajectory perspective, which I'm going to come back to later in our class today, but is followed by another revolutionary idea in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. So let's keep reading. I'll, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, tribes existed at that time for the securing of a people, right? There's an identity that comes with tribes. There are gods that are followed by tribes. There's stories that come along with tribes about how the world is created and good laws that go along with a tribe. <clears throat> tribes existed for the benefit and the ongoing nature of that tribe. But then comes at the end of that, which is all normal stuff that God says to Abram up to that point. But listen to the second half of verse 3. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see the difference? This isn't a tribe that's going to exist just for its own benefit and blessing. It's not pooling its resources to protect its own. This is a tribe that's going to exist for the good of all tribes on earth, for the blessing of all tribes on earth. This is a brand new kind of tribe. This isn't a tribe about self-preservation. It's a tribe that's going to extend its blessing to the far borders of the earth. Abram's tribe exists to bless all the other tribes. And if only we caught up to that as humans to believe that's actually still the role of God's tribe, the church, right? We exist not for those who are a part of us. We exist for those to bless all of those other tribes on earth. You see how radical this idea was in the midst of that time? This is a radical a new idea in human history. Most tribes exist to protect their own and to secure their own. This tribe, though, it's different. The problem is that we have this nostalgic impulse, though, for the way tribes used to be. That keeps, I think, the people of God from living out the calling that's there in Genesis 12 and never really getting forward to it again, at least for a long while. We see it over and over again in the Bible. When it pops up, people are moving against the idea that God is trying to draw things forward to this blessing of the entire earth to then kind of pull things back, protect things that are there. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Stockholm Syndrome? It's kind of a tragic situation that comes up in situations. I don't know if any of you dealt with this personally in any way or maybe in a counseling practice, but it's a condition when hostages or victims develop a psychological alliance or connection with their captors or victimizers during their time together. The term first showed up in 1973 when four hostages were taken uh, during a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. The hostages defended their captors after being released. When everyone else wanted them to sell them out and to tell the whole story, they, they had a sense of protection that they had. And as I think about the people of Israel, there's that sense of protection that's there. 
to the story for those who victimize them. Think back to the story of the Exodus, right? That's kind of the primary story of the Old Testament. The story of the Exodus is about God liberating his people from bondage, from, uh, from, from a tribe that existed for itself to enslave people. God's now freed them to go, and he's trying to tell them again, look, I, I told you in Genesis 12, I want you to bless all tribes on earth, and they forget this over and over again. But it, it's like they have Stockholm Syndrome. They want to go back to Egypt. This is a refrain that happens all through the Old Testament, right? They grumble in the desert. But isn't it amazing how quickly we get nostalgic? Moses, are you trying to kill us? It'd be better if we just had food on the table. Think of all the food we had back then, forgetting all the hardship that came along with it. And God has to remind them again, I don't want you to ever return to Egypt again. In fact, in the years to come, you're going to be nostalgic, and you're going to think back, and you're going to, when things get tough and there's powers to the north of you, you're going to want to go south and call on Egypt again. You can't do that. Don't go back. Don't get nostalgic. In fact, God's exit path, this is in Exodus chapter 13, really interesting passage. Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18. God determines the path so that they won't get nostalgic out of Egypt. This is Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was the shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. God knew there was a chance that when things got tough, they might return to Egypt. They might get nostalgic. Another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. I want to read this to you real quick as we pick up on this theme again. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land your, the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us uh, set a king over us, like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. You must choose from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. The Lord has told you you're not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. I remember a lot from that passage. I don't remember that detail about you can't go back to Egypt, but it's there. God is warning them about what's going to happen in the future. If things get tough, when they feel insecure, they're going to go back to the oppressor that had once held them in bondage. And God's saying, no, I've liberated you, and I'm making you a new tribe, unlike Egypt, so that you can bless all the tribes of earth. And sure enough, the book of Jeremiah, chapters 42 and 43, we hear it again. During this time, many of the Israelites have been taken into exile in Babylon. But there was this remnant that stayed behind in Israel. These were the people who were not worthy to be taken into exile. This remnant of Israel became nervous, and they stood between two superpowers. Babylon was to the north and Egypt to the south. So they decided, if we can just go back and arrange an alliance with Egypt, maybe in the midst of this barrier, barrier area, then maybe God will protect us through this power. And it's amazing, right? God is trying to remind them that every time they, they get insecure, they go back to the place of oppression that they had been. And guess what? They do it. They disobey. They go back to Egypt, and things don't turn out well. Nostalgia continues to play a role in this story. And it pops up in the strangest place after Jesus is resurrected. Do you remember this story? It's in Acts chapter 1, right before our favorite passage, I guess. Acts chapter 1. Turn with me there if you would. Acts 1. Jesus uh, is about to ascend, right? And he's giving his last instructions. And this, this question has been just digging at me for several years now. It's just remarkable. I, it's frustrating to be Jesus, I'm sure, to spend time with these disciples and keep getting the same questions. Listen to verse 6. Right, let's back up to uh, verse 4, actually. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around them and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Nostalgia's cloud they're thinking again. Jesus, are you going to put us in charge of Israel? Because we know you're about to take down Rome. We've been waiting on that all along. This is the moment, right? Are you going to restore it? Their heads are in the past. They're thinking about Jerusalem and the way Jerusalem used to be. And Jesus is thinking about the entire world. Look, look at how he responds in verse 7 and following. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And what will the Holy Spirit do? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Over and over again, individuals and Israel as a whole get nostalgic 
We want to make a move backward, back to a time when things were good, back to a time when things weren't even that good, but at least Egypt gave us certain things. And when it comes to Jesus' words in, in, in Acts chapter 1, he's saying, no, we're going forward, we're not going backward. This isn't about Jerusalem. This isn't about the great day of David when things were all good and the, everything was back together. We're not going back there. We're going forward. We're going to go. You need to wait. Wait for the Spirit because you guys obviously can't do this on your own. But, and, and do you remember what it takes for them to leave Jerusalem? It takes a persecution. They, they don't go on this mission willingly. Yeah, there's a few that are able to go off from there, but it takes AD 70. It takes the destruction of Jerusalem. It takes persecution for them to go on the very thing. Because, man, it's easier to go backward than it is to go forward. Sometimes God forces us to go forward. Another story of nostalgia that came to mind as I was thinking through this was 1 Kings chapter 19. The story of Elijah in chapter 18 is this great victory on Mount Carmel, right? The prophets of Baal. God declares that he's the God above the gods of Baal. And it seems like it'd be this great moment of celebration. But if you've read on from chapter 19, you know it's, 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 it's hard because Jezebel's after Elijah. And you remember what Elijah does in that scene? He runs backward. It doesn't seem like it, right? Because they changed the names to protect the guilty, I guess, right? It's not Mount Sinai that's mentioned. It's Mount Horeb, but that's the same mountain. I've I've been guilty of this before, right? God, I want you to speak. I want you to move like you used to move in that experience. I, I have a question now, and I know you, and I want to go back to the mountains of Colorado where I heard him before. I want to go back to that camp experience where I heard him before. I want to go back to that place where God spoke in the past, and that's what Elijah does. And you remember the question that God asked him in the midst of that? What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> There's all kinds of ways you can interpret that. But in this lens, I can't help him saying, quit going, quit going back to the moment where you know I spoke with the Ten Commandments. In Egypt, of all places, right? Or in the, in the exit of Egypt. Don't go backwards to hear from me. He says, look, there's 7,000 prophets of Baal who haven't bowed a knee, or, or, or prophets uh, of mine that have not bowed a knee to Baal. And he thinks he's all alone, but he said, no, the move is forward. So go back to where you came from. <laughs> and I want you to know you're not alone. There's work to do in the future ahead of you. God always calls us forward. We're the ones that want to go backward. So how does God call humanity forward into the future? How does, how does God, who's always ahead of us, invite us forward when we always seem to want to be back and we're not maybe moving as quickly as he'd like? Well, God shows up throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not just in Jesus that he shows up. And every time God shows up and meets people where they're at, there's always a risk. Because when God shows up in a particular setting, in a particular culture that's not as evolved as he'd like for it to look like, there's this risk that we'll begin to associate his commands for those people. We'll begin to associate that time period and say, well, if he spoke in that time, that must be what it is for all time, right? That's the, that's the risk of incarnation every time, is that we begin to think that God is only what he shows up in in those moments. But if he's going to move us forward, if he's going to help us forward, the only thing he can do is, is make that risk to go back and speak, knowing that he wants to take things forward again in the future. And sometimes I think we've, we've mistaken God's word in a particular moment for the thing for all time, rather than hearing the ways God continues to call the church forward. And, and this is a tension in the church as it continues on throughout Scripture. I want to point to that. So there are many in our culture, as I said, who see God as a primitive, barbaric being who's behind the times. They believe that religion's the cause of division and wars, and certainly we've got our history of that. That God's patriarchal and tribal. In other words, they believe that the God we worship is actually behind us somewhere, and we've evolved past all of that. And so if we can just do away with all that, then we can move on to a more united existence. But if you look closer, I don't think that's where God is at all. I think he's actually ahead of us, pulling us forward. Let me explain Think about some of the most barbaric, backwards passages that you struggle to explain to people when you read through Scripture. You struggle to explain to yourself. Well, I can come up with lots of them. I want to talk about four of them uh, right now. Genesis 22 is one of those passages for me. It's call of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Deuteronomy 19, this eye for an eye passage that Jesus picks up on a little bit later. Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14 is a passage, a barbaric suggestion that you can marry wives of conquered soldiers that you've killed and how to go about that. And lots of genocidal commands that we can talk about as well. 
I mean, those are awful passages from a 21st century perspective. Ones we'd rather kind of hide away. We can talk about other people's books, but if we read ours closely enough, we realize we've got some challenges as well if we read it in certain ways. So I've struggled with these passages, and I've learned to see some of these texts in, in new ways, and it's been really helpful as I've had others kind of help and walk me through this. I want to pass along what's been helpful to me, because I know when I come up, sometimes these are the very passages that atheists will kind of raise up, right, and say, how could you worship a God who suggests this? And I think we have to have a way to kind of read those to, to, to maintain our faith and have an answer for that. I, I, I found some helpful things in that. Genesis 22 is that passage about Abraham and the call to sacrifice Isaac. I want to read from Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, to kind of kick off the story and remind us of this scene. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I'll show you. Now, what, what do you do with a passage like that? Like I've told my church before, like, if somebody comes up to me and says, God told me I need to go sacrifice my child, like, that's a call legally I have to make on that one, right? Like, that's problematic. And yet we believe God still speaks. And how do, how do we ascertain and, and discern what it looks like when people hear a word from God, but and it aligns with a passage like this? This passage is a classic example of the kind of story you find in the Bible that causes many people to ask. Now, what is this story, uh, what does a story like this about a man named Abraham and his son possibly have to do with us? What, what could it teach us? And to be more specific, what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his own son? Remember, in Genesis 12, God asked Abram to go. And you remember what Abram does? He's faithful. He's, he's obedient. So Abram went, it says, three powerful words of following the commands of God. So what is Abram going to do when God tells him to kill his son? Well, we find out in verse 3. Then, God, uh, Let's see, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. No different than the time before. Early the next morning, he's packing things up, ready to go to follow God's command. In Genesis 12, we call it faith when Abram obeys God. But what do you call this exactly? If it doesn't bother you, I don't think we're paying attention. Because it's one thing to say you'll obey God no matter what. It's another thing to gather wood to load up your donkey early the next morning and go and follow God. Be honest, would you have even gathered the wood? But there's more to this story than we see at first glance. History of the ancient Near East and ancient religions begins with humans who come to the realization that their survival depended on things like food and water making sure there's enough food to go around. And for food to grow, it needs basic elements. It needs the sun. It needs proper planting techniques. And, and, and these basic ob observations brought people to a conclusion that there must be forces larger than us that are in the world. We're, we're dependent on these unseen forces that somehow bring this miracle of food up from the ground. And the belief arose that those forces are either on your side or they're not on your side. And how do you keep these forces on your side? Well, they had the idea, well, if you have a harvest, maybe we should set aside some of that harvest and give it as a sacrifice to God. Maybe that'll keep God happy. Maybe the gods will continue to produce if that's what happens. Now, imagine what happens, though, if the next year you did that and everything's good, but then the year after, there's not enough food to go around. Well, then you ask the question, what more do we do? And so maybe you go to a, a, a lamb, or maybe you sacrifice a, a bull, or maybe you sacrifice... You start sacrificing more and more because this anxiety is there. The gods up there must be angry. Maybe I haven't done enough. And if maybe I could just sacrifice more, then God will bring what we need. And uh, you know where that goes. This is that anxiety of kind of these ancient religions. Of can we do enough? Can we make God? Can we appease God? Maybe if we sacrifice more and give more and offer more. So you'd offer part of your crop and you'd offer a goat, maybe a lamb, maybe a cow, maybe a few birds. But what's the most valuable thing you could offer to the gods? It's your firstborn son. It's your, it's your child, right? It's, that's the thing that you can't imagine giving up. But this is what the gods demand. It's what you have to do. And, and that's why when God tells Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice, the next verse says early the next morning he takes up the wood and he gets on the donkey. He goes. He follows. Because that's what you do. He's not shocked the gods demand this. And originally the surprising part of this story was not that God demanded 
Isaac to sacrifice his son. That's the archaic piece we look back anachronistically and we go, how could a God, who would follow a God like that? That's what we read when the atheists write their books. In that time period, that was not an odd thing. The odd part of the story is we serve a God who's different than all the other gods. It's a God, the endless word, who does not demand you to sacrifice kids. In fact, says that's an abomination. The work of Chemosh and other gods that demand the sacrifice of children. Not The, the shocking part of the story is not, not that God would demand that. It's that this God doesn't. Again, just this revolutionary like text that's to say, yeah, all these other religions believe that, but the people of God who follow Yahweh, that's not what we believe. We get this story backwards. And this is where I want to connect the dots to my original concern about modern Christianity. We want Christianity to be conventional. We want it to be accepted by the culture. We want to be mainstream and cool, but our story has never been conventional. Because we consider Abram's decision to follow God and leave his country and his people and his family to be a decision where he steps out on faith. But somehow, when Abraham decides to obey God by going up a mountain to sacrifice Isaac, we don't call it faith, we call it crazy. And that impulse, I think, is right. Because this God is unlike all the other pagan gods. This God doesn't demand child sacrifice. This story isn't about what Abraham does for God. It's a story about what God does for Abraham to tell him a whole new picture of a God that's much better than the rest of the stories out there being told. Because on first reading, this seems archaic, doesn't it? It seems brutal. It seems primitive. It seems way behind anything we'd want to follow in a God. But in its context, this is one of the most progressive stories out there. Because this God's different than all the other gods. Let's go to that eye for an eye passage that I mentioned earlier. I think we usually hear this quoted when someone's talking about revenge, right? You, you still hear it in the discourse on the news, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You, you hit, you, you hit back. They, they bomb us, we bomb them back. They spread an ugly rumor about us, we make sure we spread a worse rumor about them. It's become a euphemism of sorts, a way of justifying the right way to get even and settle the score. But there's another way to read this verse. See, this chapter, this verse is in the context of a passage that deals with issues around uh, personal injury, uh, around property damage. And, and it includes instructions about what to do when someone's kidnapped, the importance of making a distinction between whether a personal injury was intentional or whether it was accidental. Uh, what happens if there's a fist fight and one person doesn't kill the other person but injures them enough to be confined to a bed? Pretty specific details. What's the proper procedure if someone digs a hole and someone else's animal falls into it? You know, like happened last week in your life, right? <laughs> what happens when your bull gores some other person's bull to death? And the key question, did the bull have a habit of goring and had the other person been warned? That's really important to know. See, with an eye for an eye was just another way of saying that the punishment has to fit the crime. It was a law given, actually, at that time to lessen the violence of what was going on all around it. And it demonstrates a profound insight into human nature and the character of revenge. Because revenge, if you've ever been to summer camp, always escalates, right? <laughs> One cabin raids, and the other cabin's going to raid it worse, right? One bit of gossip gets out, and the gossip's going to get worse. We always escalate because eye for an eye is never enough. And the stakes get higher, and they get higher. I mean, when someone wrongs us, we rarely, if ever, just think, if I could just get the same level back, things would be right. And likewise, when someone insults us, our instinct is to search for words that will be more insulting. Revenge always escalates. And eye for an eye was a succinct way of creating a legal standard to lessen this escalation of violence that's so natural in our world. See, when we read this passage in our current context, the wisdom of it is lost on us because... Uh, among all this talk about slaves and bulls and people getting knocked, their teeth knocked out and bulls falling into holes in the ground, at first glance it can easily appear to be another example of a primitive, regressive culture. But at that time, this regulation was given. It was, not a significant, it was a significant advance in the creation of a less volatile, more whole society, something moving towards shalom. So what sounds like a primitive, barbaric, violent phrase was actually for its time this revolutionary step forward. And what we see is God meeting real people. And this is the danger, right? Anytime you meet real people in a specific context, we may mistake that word at that time as the aim of what God wants to do for all time. But what he's doing is he's taking things forward a click at a time. And in that period, this was the click forward. Did they still have a long way to go? Of course. But in Exodus, we continue to see steps forward. 
Now, let's fast forward hundreds of years to the time of Jesus. Because by his day, this command was understood and interpreted in particular ways. People would have some kind of violence done or injustice done to them, and then they would justify their desire for revenge by quoting, you guessed it, this specific command written about the specific time. They'd say, well, you know how it is, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. In other words, I'm just doing what they did to me. Ever heard that? My own kids? Myself? See, that same verse that was intended to create a fair and just legal system, lessening violence and lessening revenge, was by Jesus' day being used to actually increase violence and justification for revenge, which leads us to a crucial insight we need to hold on to in this class. That is, that, that is that these very religious people that were deeply committed to the scriptures, who were quoting scriptures, scriptures in such a way that those people were actually working against the original intent of what the command was originally intended to do. Imagine that. <laughs> religious people quoting the Bible to defend actions that were the exact opposite of the intent for which they were originally given. See, it's possible, and this is scary for all of us, right? It's possible to quote the Bible in a way that stands directly opposed to the intent it was originally given. In a way that actually holds culture back rather than pulling it forward to God's eventual picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And then, to put a finer point on it, it's possible to take something that was a step forward at one point and still be clinging on to it at one point in such a way that we're actually pulling things backward. So third, uh, the instructions about taking soldiers' wives. This is a tough one. Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 to 14. I want to read this, and some of you may be familiar with this passage. This is one I had to kind of brush up on, but uh, I found this to be real awful, uh, to be honest, uh, as we read it from the 21st century. When you go to war against your enemies, this is Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 through 14. When you go to war against your enemies, the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you've dishonored her. Now typically when Christians read this kind of text, if we read it at all, we do so from a 21st century human rights perspective. But we would never suggest that this is an appropriate way for a soldier in modern day to treat some kind of wife of a soldier that's defeated or killed. From a modern point of view, this text and others like it sound incredibly regressive and barbaric, sexist and demeaning. Which is why those who are antagonistic to the Christian faith love to point out texts like this and ask, now why would I ever put faith in a God who would command his people to treat people this way? Which is actually a really good question that we've got to know the answer to. And to be honest, these are the kinds of questions that have caused me to doubt the goodness of God. Caused me to wonder about, it. is God actually as good as I see pictured in Jesus Christ? Because there's these passages I just can't bring together. So I want to share some background. This is a passage about spoils of war. A common occurrence in the ancient Near East where people were constantly going into battle. Which meant that people were constantly winning, which meant that people were constantly losing. It was customary that whoever won a battle took whatever belonged to their now-dead rival. That included animals and jewelry, included property, included property would include slaves and even wives, kids. That was how things were done. And it's into that world that this passage comes as this revolutionary text trying to move things forward, not so that it would end there, but it would continue to move forward. So first, the, what's commanded there is you're to... Take the woman you found attractive into your home, which meant providing for her. That meant she would have a roof and protection, food and clothes, whatever else she needed. Second, you were to shave her head, which we read that and we think, what's that about? Well, that's part of the process of grief is actually being able to walk away. Grief is this human emotion, and, and that was a part of the way you did that in that culture. See, spoils of war, they don't have feelings. There's no need to give them space or give place for grief, but that was actually what the command is here. Is this is a human, someone created in the image of God. You, you allow them that place of grief. Not as a possession, but as a person. Third, to make her your wife meant she was, not a, she was now a fully functioning member of the household. Not a possession, now a part of the family. And then fourth, when a man in that day was not pleased with a woman, he was free to send her away. You know about this, about maybe the certificate of divorce that gets debated in the New Testament with Jesus. And it didn't matter what the issue was, you could send the woman away and 
no protection against exploitation. So as a result, women who'd been sent away often had no option but prostitution. And this passage actually forbids sending a rejected woman away without rights and honor and dignity. A significant deviation from the cultural norms regarding spoils of war at that time. Now, you see how the, what is a shocking and offensive cultural practice was actually a groundbreaking advancement in that time. Is that to say that this is okay now or that we just take the, that command and just carry it forward? No. Did that culture have a long way to go in its treatment of women? Of course. Does our culture have a long way to go in our treatment of women? Of course. You watch the news recently? We'll hear a passage, I think, preached uh, tomorrow night by Sarah Barton that will talk about that very thing, I expect. But what we see in this passage is God meeting people, meeting tribes, meeting culture where they are with the risk that when you speak into it, you may be misunderstood. I'm trying to say, I'm pulling you forward into something better, into more shalom than there before, to respect the rights and the peace and the dignity and quality of all people. It's as if human history is traveling not in a cycle, but on a trajectory somewhere. And God meets them at one place and tries to take them forward to the next place, knowing that it's the people of God's job continuing on into history to continue to make things closer to what they should be rather than how they are. One way to think about God's action in the Bible to pull things forward is, is uh, God moving things forward a click at a time. Okay, think about it that way, maybe, right? In other words, God meets us at the click we're at. And his job is to move us forward, but, but God knows that it takes us a long time to get where we need to go eventually. A to Z would be a long way to go in one instant. So if you're at uh, an F, then God calls you to G. And if you're at an L, then God calls you to M. And if we're way back there at A, God doesn't say, well, they're worthless, they can't move forward. God starts at A, and he says, why don't we try to step to B? And this is true for individuals and families and tribes and nations and cultures and organizations, institutions and churches. All of it taking place on this continuum, this trajectory that God started all the way back in Genesis 12 and will not find its completion until the new heavens and the new earth and Christ's return. This bit about clicks, I think, leads us to an obvious truth about the Bible, one that we should point out, though, anyway. And that is the Bible... I don't believe it's a regressive set of books that we need to leave behind as we move forward, right? That's what some would suggest is, okay, we've, we've moved past all that, so we just kind of leave that in the past, and now we can evolve on whatever standard we feel like is appropriate. Now, the Bible is a library of radically progressive books, books that were ahead of their time then that still are ahead of so much of what we practice today. Books that tell stories about human interactions with a divine being who never ever gives up on us and stops calling us forward to buy, despite the frustration he feels about our slowness in the task or our nostalgic to move the click backwards. But here's the problem. Sometimes in the very moments God is inviting us and calling us forward to the next click, it's our understanding of the Bible that can actually be the very barrier that prevents us from moving forward again. In fact, that's the very thing that happened in the United States in the middle of the 19th century. On January 4, 1861, on a day of national fasting called to have the people pray for the country's healing, Henry Ward Beecher, North's most renowned preacher, addressed his Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, New York. In Beecher's view, the evil for which the United States as a nation most desperately needed to repent was slavery. And in his mind, the Bible could not speak with more clarity about this great evil. This is what he said in his sermon. Where the Bible has been in the household and read without hindrance by parents and children together, there you have had an indomitable yeomanry, a state that would not have a tyrant on the throne, a government that would not have a slave or a serf in the field. But to those in the South, the Bible spoke very differently to others who also rose to preach in churches at the same moment. Six weeks earlier, in a day of fasting in that faithful, uh, in, in South Carolina, the South's most respected minister, James Henley Thornwell, stood up in his Presbyterian congregation in Columbia, South Carolina, to address the very same issue, the same theme of our national sin that Beecher would address before the Congregationalists of Brooklyn. To Thornwell, slavery was the good and merciful way of or organizing labor which providence has given us. And Thornwell was so confident of his assertion, he didn't even go back to the Bible to defend it. He simply asserted this in his sermon. 
that the relation betwixt the slave and his master is not inconsistent with the word of God. We have long since settled. We cherish the institution not from avarice, but from principle. Now, where in the world did we get the idea that slavery was an acceptable practice? We got that idea from the Bible. And when this library of books was written, slavery was a given in those cultures. Scattered around the Bible are stories about slaves. It's actually the primary story we talked about earlier in the Exodus. Scattered throughout the Bible about how we treat them slaves. There's these codes, and this is how you're to do that. This is how you do that better. In the New Testament, we don't actually see the early Christians challenging the institution of slavery as a whole in any direct way. And if you were to line up like a list of passages that are for or against slavery, and you were to count up those passages on each side, it's not a very big contest. You can't find a passage in Scripture that suggests that we ought to eradicate slavery, book, chapter, and verse. It's not in there. But what you do see in Scripture is a trajectory. What you see is a progression. You see an arc that's bending in a direction. So if you look at, for instance, Exodus chapter 21, and I want you to hear this verse as maybe the starting point of that arc when it comes to the issue of slavery. Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. We read a passage like that and we think, this is horrible, this is barbaric, this is awful. What, what, what could we possibly gain from this? But this is a step forward in that time period. Because in many ancient cultures, a master could do with a slave whatever he wished, not just in that time period, but many centuries that followed. But in Israelite culture, there's this movement, a click at a time towards seeing a slave's life as inherently valuable. And the move forward, the trajectory continues in the New Testament, especially when it comes to the writings of Paul. It's never actually explicitly called for the abolition of slavery, but he plants seeds that will bear fruit 1,700 years later in Europe and then in the United States. See, the New Testament takes steps away from slavery, encouraging slaves to first gain their freedom if possible. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21. And then he talks about counseling masters to treat their slaves as Christ treats them. Ephesians 6, verse 9. And most significantly, something we could read that may get toward abolition, Galatians 3, 26 to 28, it says, for those who are in Christ, there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. See, the trajectory is there. And yet in the 19th century, the church had this choice of how they would handle slavery. We did. We shouldn't just say they. Some quoted the Bible and believed abolition was wrong. Some wanted to move beyond Paul's words, but they played it safe because they couldn't find a book, chapter, or verse to support him. John Henry Hopkins was one of the good people who played it safe. These are his words from the 19th century. If it were a matter to be determined by personal sympathies, tastes, or feelings, I should be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery for all prejudices of education, habit, and social position stand entirely opposed to it. But, as a Christian, I'm compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty, for then only can I be safe in my conclusions. What's he saying? And everything inside of me is telling me this is wrong. But I've been taught that unless I have a book, chapter, and verse, the only way to be safe in my conclusions is to find that verse. Let him put everyone else in safety. And history has declared his safety as cowardice. He was on the wrong side of history because he failed to see what God was calling him to do all the way back in a book called Hebrews, which is where I want to close our class today. It's I think my favorite passage in all of scripture. I say that a lot in my sermons, so maybe I'll change my mind next week. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to this passage. Hebrews chapter 11. I find this to be a remarkable passage. Um, obviously, it's the passage where we talk about it in the Hall of Faith passage, by faith so-and-so. I want to read uh, a little bit later in that passage, in verse 39. These were all commended for their faith. Who's these talking about? Right? All these people by faith. Those that go unnamed. All these who went through all this persecution. These were all commended for their faith. 
And all of these heroes lived by faith. They were commended for that. But the next word is the key word, yet. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. In other words, these people didn't get to live to see Jesus on planet Earth. We have the privilege and the perspective of living in an era when we do, living after Jesus with the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of us, carrying on God's purposes in our time and in our place and our space. Then the bomb gets dropped in verse 40. Listen to this. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's my favorite verse. I think it ought to be yours too. You realize the moment we're living in? We're not the era after the Bible that was completed who just sit on our hands and wait for Jesus to return. I thought that was the deal growing up. Like once you're baptized, we pat parents on the back and say, aren't you glad that's over? That's not our story because we're in this game with what the next verses will say, the great cloud of witnesses is hollering back to us. And you know why they're hollering back to us? Because their story's not made perfect yet. We're a part of that story. And that word translated as perfect in the Greek is the word teleotho, which comes from the Greek root telos. Telos is a big-time Greek word. It's a word used by Aristotle and Plato, central to nearly all philosophical theories of history, back to Hegel, Hegel and Marx. Your telos is your goal. It's your end game. Your telos is the vision you have for what you, where you want your business to end up, where you want your family to end up, where you want your personal career and your life to be headed. Your telos is your goal. The telos of a marathon runner is the finish line. The telos of a sports team is the championship trophy and the celebration. I'm telling you, this Bible verse should become your favorite verse in the Bible. Did you realize what the writer of Hebrews is saying? The heroes of faith in Scripture that we talk over and over again nostalgically about what God used to do in their day are rooting us on saying, please perfect and finish and bring it to its telos. The Spirit of God is at work in you. They're cheering you on. Can you hear them? Telling you to keep at it. They didn't see what they hoped for. They didn't know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're waiting on us to have their story completed. They're waiting on us to perfect the story. It's as if we're part of a five-act play. And we have all these acts in Scripture, right, that we read about. From Act 1 to 2 to 3 to 4. But we're in Act 5. And as actors in Act 5, I think back to N.T. Wright telling the story and kind of imagining this way in one of his books. He talks about how in, it's like we have a five-act story and we have four pieces of it. And we're the people who've got to figure out as actors how to finish a story that we've lost the ending of. We've got all this stuff, but what we tend to do is we get nostalgic and we, we think, what a great what God used to do back then. What a great the remarkable things he did by faith, so-and-so, by faith, so-and-so, by faith, and on and on. We talk about the past when God was actually more active than when he's present to do stuff now. Ladies and gentlemen, we have got a role to play. There are still clicks on this trajectory that God's calling his church to point the rest of the culture forward to. And the only way we complete this story as its author intended is to go back to the Bible so that we can know faithfully with the help of the Holy Spirit how to bring this story to its intended telos. So how do we interpret the Bible when it comes to an issue like slavery? Well, if I were a betting man, I would wager that nobody in this room would defend the practice of slavery. No one would say, abolition? No, there's no passage to support that. And yet none of us have one Bible verse to support that conclusion. And growing up, I was taught, you need a verse to support everything. And then I look around at the church and I go, well, that's not true with this. I don't have a verse to support the abolition of slavery, but my contention is that this ancient library of books that God inspired and continues to inspire is dead set against the practice of owning another human being. And I can confidently say that because what I see in Scripture is this trajectory, right? It starts in a story in Exodus, and it continues on with Paul. We want to look and throw stones at and say, boy, isn't that primitive and barbaric? Yes, it is if we read it anachronistically, but if you read this Bible with this lens, seeing the way that God's pulling things forward, it's the most revolutionary text you can imagine. It's far ahead of stuff that's being written today. And I can confidently say that because I see the trajectory. I see the hand of God continuing to pull things forward a click at a time. 
And if Israel had remembered their story, it would have been obvious that the trajectory is headed toward abolition. In fact, if you think about it, there's an entire, we may not have a verse, but we have an entire book about this, right? The Exodus story is that chapter, right? It's that book. It's the verse we've been waiting on, and we've been dissecting it up by those numbers that were added much later to miss the overarching picture of what God's doing. What's the point of Exodus? The story of Exodus is about a God who takes action to set his people free from slavery. The book of Exodus lets us know that God is a God of liberation, and that hasn't changed. God hears the cries of the oppressed who are in chains and always chooses their side. And over and over again, God commands Israel not to mistreat a or oppress a foreigner. And why? He always tells them. Because you were once slaves in Egypt. You remember back? If you're going to have nostalgia, remember that piece. Because we never want to do that again. It's as if God is saying, what I've done for you is what I want you to do for others. But generations later, it's obvious to me that Israel forgets their story. It's a small detail that's hidden in this strange passage all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings 9 verse 15. Listen to this. Here's the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the walls of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Did you hear that? Here's the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. They forgot their story. There was a day when they were crying out to God, wondering if God was going to hear their cries for liberation, and God frees them. And what do they do when it's time to build the God's temple? They use slaves to do it. And when Solomon sets out to build his palace and the temple of the Lord, he built it on the backs of slaves. In just a few generations, the oppressed have become the oppressors. You know, now's not a time to become comfortable and to fall into the trap of nostalgia. Because we serve a progressive God who has established God's kingdom on the earth. I think we're supposed to live in tune with that kingdom. I think it's the role of the church to live as this future colony on earth. All the way back to Genesis 12, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'll curse those who curse you. And you're going to bless all the nations on earth. It's the same calling the church has today. Not to pool our resources and look internally and to build walls around ourselves and try to protect ourselves from influence of our teens getting drawn away from faith, but it's to, it's to open ourselves up and to be a blessing to others. Because the God who liberated slaves in Egypt is still moving things forward a click at a time to the telos he has in mind, to the conclusion he has in mind, and he's doing it with more than just slavery. I could have charted this with a lot of different issues we could talk about today, right? I, encourage you to think about this. How do you think about the meta-narrative of Scripture? How do you think about the ways God moves things forward a bit at a time? And how have we missed it because we saw that one piece and forgot what God was wanting to continue to do? See, God is ahead of us. Since Genesis 1, 12, uh, 12, he's been pulling us out of our cyclical vision of the world to say, no, this thing's headed someplace. And it's the church's job to live as that future community, to live as a sign, to live as a foretaste of the future kingdom of God. This is our evangelism, Right? Our evangelism is to, to show people what heaven looks like in the present moment. We pray this, don't we? We pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we live into that prayer. We step into that prayer so that when people see the way of life, they go, why are you living like this? Why are you living so oddly in comparison to the world around us? And we say, well, we're trying to prepare for the future because <laughs> this is where things are headed. We're called to give the world a glimpse of what the entire world will one day look like. So let's move forward together. Thank you all for being here. Let me close this with prayer. Father, I thank you for scripture, for this incredible book that tells stories about your faithfulness with people like David, people like Esther, with people like Peter. All throughout the story, God, we read about people of faith. People of faith who catch on to what you're doing, and we make a mess of it so often. We pull things backward. We get nostalgic about times in the past. But, God, I, I'm grateful for the ways that you're ahead of us, that you see things that we don't yet see, that you're calling your church to live into this future vision. And it's a beautiful vision, God. We, I, I love that we're the restoration movement. But, God, my prayer is that we would not try to restore any kind of first century vision, but it would be a restoration of Eden be a full restoration back to what the future is again, God, where you will 
send down your new heavens and new earth and we'll get to live where the lion lies down in peace with the lamb and where we'll train for war no more uh, where we'll no longer mourn in the ways we have in the past so God I pray that we as we uh, walk through this week we get glimpses of that trajectory we get glimpses in teaching this week that would point us forward to what you're doing and God may we catch up to you may we run so that we can perfect and continue this vision, God, that your people never got to see, but we're getting to see more and more. Thank you for your spirit that continues to guide us. And God, help us to see, with the help of Scripture, God, how you continue to call your church to be faithful in these days, in these times. We pray this in Jesus' name.